morning, everyone. Yes, I am in the house. Woo! We just had a fun time worshiping, the four of us in here. We were praising the Lord during that worship time. So we don't need many people to worship our God. We can worship anytime. That is what a blessing that is, and it's indeed blessing. I want to stop for just a moment. Um, I want us to pray uh, for Pastor Dennis's father. He was rushed to the hospital this morning. Uh, he is dealing with potential dementia, and they're not sure. The family's not sure. Pastor Dennis is far away from him, and it's very difficult for a son to be far away from their father during this time. So we love Pastor Dennis, and we want to pray for him and Kathy and the entire family, for his family, for his brothers, and for his mom. And So we're going to take a moment. Would you please do me a favor? Would you send your love to Pastor Dennis on Facebook? Just give him a comment. Let him know you're praying for his family even this morning as I'm preaching so that we can come together in unity and pray for God to do a miracle even this morning so that Pastor Dennis would have an opportunity to travel up there soon to see his dad. So God, we just, uh, we just want to pray right now in Jesus' name that you would begin uh, to do your healing hand upon Mr. Fay. We thank you for our Pastor Dennis and for Kathy and for the blessing they are to us in this church and for Grace Church and for the many years of service serving you. God, we do. We ask that you would continue to be with this family. Bless them, encourage them, strengthen them. Be with Mr. Fay. Be with the doctors. Give them wisdom. Pray that you would help them to get through it well. Pray that you would help them to move forward and ask that, God, you would just continue uh, to touch them during this time. And I ask, God, that you would add another blessing and a, and a prayer request that you would give Pastor Dennis the opportunity to go and spend time with his dad soon. Lord, we just ask for that, Lord, and we thank you that we have this opportunity this morning to pray together in unity, to pray together in, in, uh, in, in strength so that, God, you would be glorified. Lord, we just ask even salvation would come upon that home in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. Absolutely, Pastor Dennis. We are here. We are a body of Christ. We're excited that even though we're in the midst of a crazy time as we've been talking uh, Pastor Dennis and I and others have been talking about how incredible this time has been. Um, it's been strange. It's been weird. It's been uncertain. We don't know what we're going through, but we know one thing. God has not changed in the midst of all of this. He will never change. He will always be faithful. He will always be God. He will always be compassionate. He will always be merciful and gracious. He will always, always be loving and just. And so we have to lean on God during these times. And I really believe that this is an opportunity for us to grow. We've been talking about that. So please, let's let's come together for the sake of the gospel. The last couple of weeks, we've been working through the book of Jonah. We'll finish next week. And we've been talking about GPS. We've been talking about God's pursuit for sinners. And I've been giving you some kind of stories uh, along the line. And I have another story this morning. I was uh, traveling a couple of months ago up to Lancaster Bible College, Washington, D.C. campus. I've been uh, teaching at the school for some years now, but up at the main campus, and this was my first opportunity to teach at the Washington, D.C. campus. So I was excited, and I was traveling up, and I'm still learning the roads, and I had my GPS on and was almost there. And as I got off the exit, I believe it's 495, I was getting off the exit, and I'm, I was looking at the GPS on my phone, 
and, or I'm sorry, not my phone, but in my navigating, navigation uh, in my car through my phone. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the picture and I, I get confused which road to take because there's like, there was two roads close to one another. It was 95 going to the left and then turning off to head towards the campus, which was like two minutes down the road. Well, knowing me and how confused I get at times, especially driving, sure, I took the wrong turn. I went to the left and got on to 95, and I think it was 95, but anyway, I said, ah, man, and I began to just blame my GPS. I was blaming my GPS. It was the GPS that was the problem, right? Uh, No, no, you can't blame the GPS because the GPS wasn't the problem. So I got on, and I'm just kind of getting a little frustrated. I'm like, okay, thankfully I left a little early. So I'm traveling down. I'm thinking, no problem. Just turn around, get off the next exit. And I look to my left, and it was a backup, bumper to bumper on the other side. And I was like, oh, man, I'm only two minutes away, and this has to happen. Why does everybody have to be there at 5 o'clock right now? Why does this have to happen at 5 o'clock? Why couldn't it happen at a time where there was no traffic? So I started blaming people in the traffic. So I get off the exit, turn around, get on the other side, and then I start blaming people they are driving too slow. Okay, now can you get a load of that? They're driving too slow. It's bumper to bumper, and I'm blaming the people. And I'm like, boy, why can't I blame myself for once? No, instead I'm just prideful, and I'm stuck on blaming everyone else. Well, what what ended up, what could have been two minutes ended up being 25 minutes. Thankfully, I left about an hour early just to be safe because I didn't know if I was going to catch traffic. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? Maybe you're on the road like me, and you're going crazy, and you can't seem to read or look at a picture on your phone, or you can't seem to find the right road, and you start blaming everyone but yourself. You know, I think sometimes that happens because we have a difficult time admitting we make mistakes. We get into this world where we'll blame everyone, kick the dog, blame the kids, blame the weather, blame everybody but ourselves. And I think sometimes that's what happens in our lives. We get so caught up, and we just can't admit we're wrong. We have a difficult time confessing our sin and repenting, because then we have to look at ourselves rather than blaming everyone else. I think one of the greatest challenges for Christians today, I really believe this, is learning to humble ourselves before our God and repenting. Whether we feel like we have to repent, whether we evaluate and assess our lives and say, you know what, Uh, my life is actually okay, I'm doing everything right. We still daily need to repent because we are sinners saved by grace. And if we don't forget that, we're going to continue this righteousness, this pharisaical righteousness of walking with God. And God loves us too much to let us go down that road. And we're all guilty of it. Just like I shared a little story with you right now, we're all guilty of it. So as we look at what we've been talking about, chapter one, we talk about what is your destination? We hope that it's not something personal or something for yourself, but ultimately that it would be to reach those who are far away from God. Because God called on Jonah. Jonah turned around, said, no, Lord, I'm not going towards Nineveh. I don't want to go 500 miles. I'm going to turn to the left and go the other way, turn about face and go 2,500 miles on a boat to Tarshish. But God had to intervene, and he did, and even revealed himself to Phoenician sailors, of which the Phoenician sailors actually surrendered to God. But Jonah didn't. God had him hurled over after bringing a storm, and they threw him overboard 
to land into the sea where he should have died. He should have died because he was playing as a false prophet. He should have died because he disobeyed God. God could have smited him, but God cared enough about Jonah to move him forward and to care enough for him that he would even have him being swallowed by a great fish. And here he was in the fish for three days. Should have died, but God kept him. And he had a pit stop, and God allowed him to be in a pit in order to change him. And then from there, we saw last week, chapter 3, where's your turnaround point? I mean, when are we going to turn around? Just like I had to turn around even with my job over at the school. I had to turn around and got caught up because I made a mistake. Honestly, sin is missing the mark, making a mistake. Now, I wouldn't say that I would call sin taking a wrong turn, but sometimes when we sin, we do take a wrong turn. We take another road rather than God's road. Without obedience, we disobey. So here, the turnaround point is now we're talking about repentance. Because in the narrative, it wasn't so much Jonah repenting as we talked about end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. He might have changed his mind, but we're not sure if he changed his heart. In fact, I believe that he has not changed his heart. But he at least went back on the mission and agreed with God in the first part of chapter 3. And now, as we get around verse 6, we're seeing that the players in this storyline are the Ninevites. And the king, who's the leader, leads well in this process. So as we see that, I just want to encourage you, we're going to do part two today of what's your turnaround point part two. Because we're going to be looking at Jonah and then even possibly looking at another person towards the end. So let's look at Jonah. If you would turn with me to Jonah chapter three, verse six. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So as we look at that verse, we have to ask, the, in my opinion, we have to ask the question, what did the king of Nineveh do when he heard the news about God destroying Nineveh? Well, it's really simple. It's right there in the verse. Let's just start with number one. He got up. Now, you might think, okay, he got up. What's the big deal about him getting up? When you're looking at it both exegetically and as, you're, as, as a person is looking at this and studying the scripture just from verse 6, you got to stop it. He got up. Why? Because when he got up, he could have got up and just got a snack. He could have got up and refused to surrender to God and stood up and saying, I'm not surrendering to you, God. Keep bringing it on. Remember the historical background of the Ninevites having in 763 B.C., when the eclipse came, when there was, you know, famine, when the revolt, when the enemies came against them, they saw that much was coming against them and they knew something was wrong. And although they were polytheistic in nature and looking to all kinds of gods, they recognized it's this God that Jonah's proclaiming, Elohim, even Yahweh, would be the one that they want to look to for help. So he got up. He could have blamed his servants. But he got up, he arose, and that's a key word there to understand because now the next thing he did was he took off his royal robe. Now understand something. Taking off a royal robe means that if you find your identity as a king and you know you are the authority of the land and you know you have the ring to place on any document to approve anything, then he took off his robe as saying, in essence, I have no authority right now. I'm getting off of my throne, which is, an, again, something of authority. 
his throne, and then he takes off his robe with another sign of authority to say, I'm about to humble myself before the so-called God, the God that Jonah the prophet is proclaiming. So now he takes off saying, I can't find my identity and my authority anymore. I'm in a bad place because now it's not about me. I can't get myself out of this situation. Do you ever think about that? Um, Do you ever think that sometimes when we can't get ourselves out of a situation, we keep trying to get ourselves out of the situation? Is it possible that we need to get off of our thrones and start kneeling down before the throne of God? (laughs) Do you ever think that maybe we need to bow down to the ground as God is sitting on the throne and saying, Lord, I'm off my throne? Because so often we sit on our throne and think we could handle ourselves. And often what we can do is say, yes, I can do this. I can get myself out of COVID. I can figure this out. Well, I can tell you, I've tried to figure out everything. Pastor Dennis and I have been just scratching our heads for about four or five months saying, what are we going to do to get out of this? And we realize there's nothing else but to pray and to repent. And here he's setting up. But then he goes on to the next thing. He puts on sackcloth. And again, I mentioned that. Often people who are mourning for death and sin would place this sackcloth on them and around them and their bodies. And it would show a sign of mourning, a sign of humility, a sign of saying we need help. And he does that. He says he put on, it says that he put on sackcloth for the guilt and the shame. And then lastly, he did this. He sat in ashes. And I thought about this for a second, and you might think this is kind of silly, but who would sit in ashes? If you see some ashes, like if you were doing a bonfire and you saw some ashes, who would sit in ashes? Well, I think a little child would. Wouldn't you think that a little child wouldn't know any better? They would just jump in there and think it's cool and sit in ashes because they wouldn't know what the big deal is. But we who are a little more, I guess, intelligent and informed, we wouldn't sit in ashes. But here he humbled himself. It's a sign of showing a deep humiliation, just like a childlike mind to say, I will sit in these ashes because I can't do this on my own. And so as you think about this passage and you think about what's being said, ultimately, God is setting up where king, the king of Nineveh is humbling himself. So as we look at the next passage or next part of the passage, I ask this question, what did the king tell the people to do? So he's doing it himself. He's humbling himself. So what does he tell? Well, a good leader would now lead his people to say, you must do the same. So we see here in verse 7, it says, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. So it got publicated through Nineveh and saying, you know, published. And they were saying, look, you need to do the following. He says, I'm going to put a decree. The king, the king said, and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. It's fast. He's saying you have to sacrifice. Don't drink anything. Now, for some of us, that's really hard. That is a sacrifice in and of itself that you have to concentrate really hard to say, I can't drink or eat anything right now. But he was calling on his people to do that. And then verse 8, he goes, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. So let's just stop again and ask that question. What did the king tell the people to do? One, fast. Again, we understand what fasting is. It's sacrificing. But what we see is that he, they even said it was the animals that needed to be a part of this because it was part of their custom. They would even have the animals to join with them. 
the beasts all around. Now, I don't know, but when you, you feed your animals so you'd have good livestock so you could live, but now even the animals had to take a break. And you were, you were making your animals suffer through this, but that's okay because that was what they held to. Don't agree with it totally, but that's okay. But it, what I really appreciated was that he was willing to say, we have to fast. We have to cry out. Number two is he said, put on the sackcloth. So what a good leader does, if he does it, he's calling on his people to do it. But before he calls on his people to do it, he must do it first himself. We never ask anybody to do anything we're not, we're not willing to do ourselves. That's one important leadership principle. And here he does it. He puts on the sackcloth, mourning, and he says, you need to do the same. Mourn for the sin. So he's not saying it like, you know, okay, well, whether you feel it or not, you got to do it because it's not about feeling. It's about commitment. It's about obedience, about faithfulness. And with us, you may not feel like you have to repent right now, but we're called to repent because repentance is, a, is, is truly a state of action. It's acting on something. It's willing to even sacrifice. It's willing to say, I'm going to turn around and go the other way. Third, cry out strongly. This is important because the word in Hebrew means to cry with strength. So I said cry out strongly to God. Why? A confession with a broken and crushed spirit. So confessing, admitting what they have done is sin. Now what was it that they did? Well, we understand even the next thing is they turned from their evil and violent ways. Remember what I said earlier in chapter 1 that they would rip the lips off of people while they were still alive. And they would have skeletons and just all, just put them in a pile to show the people that they have the power to kill people at any point. It was evil, it was violent, it was wicked, but yet God was still willing to chase after these people. Why? Because they just acted in their ignorance and their sin. And God was like, I have a compassionate, loving heart to reach those who are wicked and evil. And I want my people to have that same heart. I want Jonah to have that heart. Today, God wants us to have that heart. He wants us as the church to reach those who are far away. He does not want the church to simply be a country club. He wants us to reach out to those who are far away, our neighbors, those who are in our workplaces, those who, are, who, who desperately need a family member, someone, even if we're mistreated, even if they've treated us in a wrong way, in any kind of way, we have to turn around and love them through it because God has called us to it. And so the same here, they were calling on them to turn from their evil ways. Now, let me just give you a couple things. Let me stop here for just a second because... The word return or turn is mentioned about five times in these four or five verses. Twice in, in chapter 9, or verse 9, and once in verse 10, and here again. But there are three meanings that could be laid out in the cow. That's just in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a form of the verb. One is just turn back. That's all it means, just return. return. And the other means to turn back. The second one means to turn back to God and devoted to Yahweh. Now, remember what I said last week. They didn't know Yahweh. They were recognizing Elohim, but they didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. But the Ninevites, they, they wanted to, at this point, to turn from their difficult situation, from their peril, from all that was happening against them. So another third meaning in the Hebrew is turn away from, abandon. What would they want to happen? They would want God to ultimately abandon his anger against them. 
they would want to turn from their evil ways so God wouldn't be angry against them. They wanted to abandon their violent ways. They wanted to abandon all the different things that they were doing. And they wanted, ultimately, they were praying for this God of Elohim to cease his anger against them. So that's what was happening here. They were turning away from God. But turning away from their evil ways and turning toward God. By turning away from their abandoning evil and violent ways, it led God, it's like a leading in a process of God relenting from his judgment from his proclamation to judge them for their evilness and their wickedness. So it was sincerely a conditional covenant. So they recognized that. The king of Nineveh recognized that God was angry toward their violent and evil ways, and he was going to judge them. What happens when we don't repent? Happens when anyone doesn't repent. When we don't repent, like I said earlier, when I was willing to blame anyone the GPS, the people across the way or at 5 o'clock or the traffic. What happens is when we don't repent, when we don't admit that we're sinners, we cover up. So when we don't repent, we react by just blaming others for what they're doing. And I think that's kind of when we remember in chapter 1, the sailors weren't trying to find blame in Jonah. And Jonah honestly recognized that he was rebelling against God. He was rebellious. And as he was rebellious, the sailors repented, but Jonah didn't. And see, that's what's happening with the Ninevites right now. Because now they're beginning to repent and God's taking notice of it. So now I ask the question, how did the Lord respond to their repentance? Let's look at verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, the word or that phrase, who knows, is similar to chapter 1, verse 6, which is perhaps it's the same word because they were longing. The the sailors, a Phoenician sailor says, perhaps God could have compassion on us. At the time when Jonah and the boat was, with the storm coming and the boat almost going down, they were crying out to God. Now, the reason why the king of Nineveh was speaking in this language is because he didn't know if it was an unconditional covenant from God, Elohim, or a conditional covenant. He didn't know. He didn't have a relationship with Yahweh, but we know. We have a relationship with Yahweh. His name is Jesus, Kyrios, and Yahweh and Kyrios is one and the same, and we have a relationship with God. So we know when we confess and repent, God will have favor on us because of his son. And so it's important for us to repent. It's important for us to bow down. It's important for us to be broken in spirit. It's important for us to understand that that's what it is. And so verse 10, when it says, when God saw what they did, when he saw how they turned from their evil way, which the word ra in Hebrew is evil, just wicked and evil, God relented. Now, remember, it's not God repented. See, repentance has to deal with humans. When people turn about face and go the other way. See, God's not repenting from his statement and proclamation. Really, what he's doing is I'm going to share is he withdrew from his judgment. That's all he did. He made a judgment, he made a proclamation, and now he's withdrawing from it because of their action. So now it is a conditional covenant. 
Just like in Deuteronomy 28, you have blessings, you have cursings. And God said that if you would obey me, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, I'll curse you. Same kind of, you know, concept here. He withdrew their judgment because they repented. It was conditional. They turned about face. They turned away. They abandoned their evil way. And how about you? Where are you right now? As a Christian, what are you doing in your life that you know you need to repent? What are some of the patterns or habits in your life that you know are sinful, but you continue to do it because you just push it aside, thinking, well, I need this for now. I'm down and out. I'm going through COVID. I'm emotionally drained. I'm psychologically drained. I just, I, I need a break right now. And you're falling into sin. Are you repenting? Do you know I really believe that the reason why we're going through this, I honestly, it's because God's trying to get his, his church in order. I really believe that he's trying to get our attention. I believe that he's trying to get us back together, repenting and lamenting and crying out to God. I really believe he's trying to turn us around, whether universal or locally, and crying out and praying. In fact, in September, we're going to believe God that we're going to have in this worship center a time of prayer. So you have your mass. You need to come out. I want to encourage you to come out. There's no reason why you shouldn't be here. And we should pray together and corporately together. Just like the Ninevites, the king of Nineveh called on the people corporately to come together to fast, to put on sackcloth and ashes, to pray and to repent. And they were looking to a God they didn't even know. And you and I know Jesus. We have a relationship with God. And now we're asking, where should we turn? We should turn to Jesus. That's where we should be corporately together. Not complaining, not blaming anyone, not saying I don't feel like it, or saying church isn't the way it used to be. It doesn't really matter because it's not about going to church, it's about being the church, and we need to take this moment now more than ever to start praying and asking God to move us forward because we're moving forward for the kingdom of God. We're not gonna let this stop us. Ain't no stopping us now. We're on the groove. And we're on the groove moving forward. Yeah, let me be silly. Let me wake you up right now. But that's what it's about. God's not going to withhold his judgment for the Ninevites. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, so we don't have judgment. Two, he offered his forgiveness. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see the people of God, instead of react and blame others and get back at everyone else who wrongs them, wouldn't it be cool that if when people wrong us, we would forgive them? God was calling Jonah to do this. God was calling out of the, for Jonah to reach evil, wicked people. God wasn't intimidated. In fact, he didn't hold a grudge. Would it be cool if the people of God wouldn't hold a grudge? Couldn't we respond in this way if someone would repent? I really believe God's calling us to this. I believe it's a challenge for us. So I asked the question, what is true repentance last week? And then I said, well, what it's not first. So today we're going to talk what it is. And we start with, you got to believe God. Remember last week, believing God, verse 5. Believing in Yahweh, not just Elohim, but Yahweh, because we talked about that last week. Now, one is, what is true? I believe it's a convicted heart. I believe it begins there. And John 16, 8 through 11, we see the word convict. And we understand that the Holy Spirit convicts three things that he convicts on, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts people of sin. He convicts people of the righteousness of God, meaning when we stand in the, before God and we, we, he's the standard and we put ourselves according to his standard, we recognize we're sinners. 
He is righteous. And now, because we've trusted in Christ, we now gain the righteousness of God. It's a standing. It's called positionally justified. It means that we don't deserve it, but God has justified us because of Jesus, because of the person and work of Jesus. And now we are in sanctification, positionally sanctified, and then we are progressively walking in sanctification. That's theologically based to say that we now, because of a conviction, God, the Holy Spirit, has convicted us of the righteousness of God, the Father and the Son, and he too being the third person of the Trinity. And judgment. Because what's great about judgment, and you might think I'm a little crazy, remember in Jonah, he judged with the intention to reach. And God judged to show us that we need to be changed, that we need to repent. See, repentance is is actually a good thing. Why? Because then it shows us, it's given kind of a measurement to say we're sinners And we need to repent because as we place ourselves before the standard of God, perfection, we're imperfect. We need to be changed. So actually, the warning of judgment is a mercy and hope. It's mercy and hope. I love what one of the commentators stated that I want to just share with you. I want to read it to you. It says this, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. The one inhabited in the world is the object of conviction. And a study of this passage, just in this short little passage of John, yields the following results. First, conviction for sin is the result of the Holy Spirit awakening humanity to a sense of guilt and condemnation because of sin and unbelief. Second, more than mental conviction is intended. The total person is involved. This can lead to action biased on a sense of conviction. Third, the conviction results in hope, not despair. And so it's important for us to understand that when we truly convict, when we're convicted and we're exposed of our sin, the hope is that we are called to repentance. So repentance is a good thing because when it convicts us, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we have an opportunity to confess. Two, I believe the second thing is a confessing heart. When we admit what God calls sin is sin, homo in the Greek, as I've said so many times, is that it's admitting what God is saying, sin is sin. It's not saying I'm sorry, it's saying, God, thank you for the forgiveness you have offered me through your son because I am a sinner and I have sinned. And it's come to that confession, kind of like I'll go back to my beginning story. I just needed to admit I was the problem, not anyone else. And so it's important that we must call it out. Anger, pride, arrogance, envy, jealousy, slander, or malice. These are sins. And when we confess our sin, he promises us to cleanse us. That's, again, a, a hopeful thing. So when we sin, we're not, it's not as though God's going to get rid of us or smite us. No, it's because of Jesus and the forgiveness that we have it. No, number three is contrite heart. We want to make sure that we have a contrite heart, a broken spirit, willing to repent. So we have to have a contrite heart. Where, where do we see this in the scripture? Well, we see it here in Psalm 51, 17, at the time of David, when he committed sin against Bathsheba, sexual sin. And he committed this sin. And in verse 17, it says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So the brokenness of our sin, recognizing what God calls sin is sin, because it's a barrier, it's a barricade, it stops us from loving God. It's a wall that's been placed up. And God comes, when we just come humbly, God breaks the wall down, and then we're restored 
back to God. Even in Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So he's near the brokenhearted. So if you're sensing something and you need to be contrite and broken right now, what a great time, what a great opportunity for you to come broken before God. He will restore you. He will cleanse you. He will give you that heart that you need to have. Four, he he wants to give you a changed heart. And a changed heart is just simply the turnabout going the other direction. That's repentance. See, when we confess our sin, when we repent, we were walking this way. Now God's saying turn about face and going towards God. And our repentance now says that we look at and see God differently. You recall of that day, I hope. I know I did. I know it's important to see that but we need to have a changed heart. And last, a compassionate heart. See, this is where it all ends. Because repentance isn't just words. There are actions that follow. And God is doing an inside work. He's doing surgery in our hearts. We don't see it, but the work of God is changing our hearts. And when he's changing our heart, he's changing our heart of having compassion towards others. Now, I don't know if you recall, but I remember I wasn't very compassionate before Christ. But I'll tell you, God is doing more of that work in me 30 years later. And compassion means that when someone wrongs me, I must love them to an unlimited measure because the Bible tells me to. Because God's love is eternal and it's limitless. And so a compassionate heart is what we even see in Psalm 51 again, 10 through 13. Just work with me here for just a moment. It says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. The word create means to build. It's the same word we see in Genesis 1.1, and he created the heavens and the earth. God is building in us a pure heart. In fact, the word clean in the Hebrew, the idea of it is pure gold. It's ceremonial cleaning. It's actually ethical cleaning. God's changing and cleaning our hearts. He's creating our heart. But this was David. He was broken because he sinned against God as a king and as a follower of God, the God of Israel. So it's important to understand. Then he goes on, he says, cast me not away from your presence. In another version, it says, restore and take not your Holy Spirit from me. It was, it was at that time not dwelling or permanent, but selective. And so while it was selective, the Spirit of God was upon David as the king. So it's important to understand that restore means to return. Return the joy of his salvation. Even it says, the next verse it says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit, a willing spirit to follow you, to return this joy that I once had at the beginning, at the very beginning, the love for you. That restoring is to return. The idea is that it's the causing of turning around. It's God creating a a building in you and bringing forth just certain situations in your life that brings you back to him. I often pray this, God, restore the joy of my salvation. When I'm in a in a difficult place, when I'm in a season where it's just, it's tiring, like right now, I continually cry out to God. But then he says this in verse 13, he said, then I will teach transgressors. This is the awesome verse that ends here. Your ways and sinners will return to you. That same word return is in Jonah. That same word, same exact Hebrew word. See, when he means to teach, it can mean formal instruction and practical skill. Wisdom that is applied knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge and that's what it is. 
So we're teaching others because we've experienced the struggle and the difficulty when we've fallen into sin, but then God gives us an opportunity of hope, not despair, to return to him and to show us his compassion. And when he shows us his compassion, we'll want to show it with others. In fact, we'll want to teach it to others. Transgressors are people who are just simply rebellious, who break with, the Hebrew means break away from, or behave as a criminal. So transgressors are just criminals. Do you know that you and I are sinners? We're considered criminals. Don't ever forget that. Before our God, we are sinners. That's what gives us a compassion for others because when we see those who are far away from God, we can be reminded of what we were once like and never ever try to run away thinking we are righteous and pompous and then we get pharisaical and thinking, no, I'm good now. No, really we're not because we can fall at any moment because we're vulnerable. We're suspect, but God in his mercy and his grace, even though we're considered rebels in the depths of our being, God justified us and deems us righteous, which is just unbelievable because I know who I am and I'm not righteous too often, but God in his mercy. But then it goes back in your ways. This is very important, your ways, because in the Hebrew, it means the word is merciful. It means God's ways are sometimes his commands, but in this context where the teaching of God's ways motivates repentance. It is more likely that God's merciful and his compassionate way of dealing with sinners. Doesn't mean he doesn't hold them accountable. It just means he's calling us to that. And that's where these Thanksgiving psalms, these songs come from. A place where you're in the depths of your being in your pit and you need to repent. And guys, I gotta be honest with you, right now is an opportunity for us to repent, to cry out to God and say, Lord, I need you. And we need to pray together corporately. Enough is enough, church. We gotta get together no matter what for the sake of the kingdom of God. God is calling us to that. And I think it's important, quickly as I just give you an example, in Luke chapter 19, we know Zacchaeus. You know, we knew he was a rich man, a tax collector, worked for Rome and was a crook to the Jews. But he was willing to look for Jesus. He was desperate. He knew something was not right in his world. He took action. Jesus, he stood just climbed up a tree, a short, stout man, climbs up a tree. Jesus sees him on the sycamore tree, and he calls him out. And he says, come on down. I need to come to your house. Here's this Jesus, this rabbi, this so-called son of God, the Messiah to come. And here he was. All the religious elites, elites, the common Jews said, how dare you do this? Why would you hang out with a sinner like him? They weren't very compassionate. But Zacchaeus repented. In fact, in verse 8, because he did it joyfully. He was so excited to meet Jesus. And in verse 8 it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. He didn't respond this way because there were people complaining and taunting him. No, it wasn't the case. In fact, believing even in the grammar, it shows that he was willing to respond, that he said, I'm not only going to repent because I now see you as the son of man, the son of God. He goes, I am willing to give whatever I have, half of it to the poor. He was a crook. He, had a, he was a rich man. He, he, he obviously is a tax collector for Rome. He took a lot of people's. He pocketed money. 
but he was willing to give it back. See, there was an action after his repentance. He was willing to say, Lord, my money is yours. I'm going to reach the poor. And then it says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, even in the law, in Exodus 22, 1, he was only having to just pay twofold because of this. Since the law required a fourfold payment when an animal was stolen and killed. But if the animal was found alive, then it would only be twofold. So really, he only had to pay twofold, but he was willing to double that. So he's willing to give half of his goods or half of his possessions to the poor and then pay back fourfold of what he's done. Now, I don't know about you, but that to me is repentance and action. <laughs> that means he was willing to give up and sacrifice, willing to follow Jesus. How about us? Are we willing to even do what Zacchaeus did? See, I believe he came to faith in Christ. I believe it's quite clear. Jesus said to him in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. See, repentance is an inner work, a changing of a heart that leads to a compassionate heart that will lead to a place where you want to just take whatever you have and give it to others. Why? Because we can't take it with us. When we pass, it's over. And we're called to reach those with compassion. I love what Patrick Morley said in his book, I Surrender. He said this, the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. It is revival without reformation, without repentance. Guys, I got to be honest with you. If we're not willing to take action now. I pray that God will reveal to you why any of you, any of us, are not willing to do that now. I know God is getting a hold of my heart. I know as the church, we've got to repent. I know as the church, we've got to lament. I know as the church, we've got to cry out and pray to God and really ask him to intervene in our midst. I want to see our church move forward for the kingdom of God. I want to reach more people for the kingdom. Would you all join us together as a pastoral team, as a staff, all together as the church and reaching those? But we can't do it alone. I can't do it. I'm just one person. We're all just one person. But if we can do it collectively together for the kingdom of God, what would that look like? See, I really believe that the message of change, the gospel, leads to a changed heart, salvation, creating a change of actions, repentance. Let us live with the fruit of repentance by being compassionate and reaching those who are far away. That's God's pursuit of sinners. That's the turnaround point that's got to happen in our lives. That's what's got to change. I challenge you this week. If you feel like, ah, church is not the same, it's not. Get over it. It's not. I mean, my gosh. I mean, we know it's not. We know we can't do what we want to do because of COVID. Okay, but should that stop us? No. And we're doing fine. My family and I are set free. You can tell now. I'm set free. I am set free. I can go out into public now. But COVID's not going to stop us. I'm more concerned about God stopping us. I'm more concerned about us not repenting. I'm more concerned about us not praying. I'm more concerned about us not being about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm more concerned about us not talking to our neighbors. I'm more concerned about us not talking to workers or friends or family members. I'm more concerned about that. May I pray, encourage you, and challenge you to repent. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Father, thank you. Today is the day of salvation. Psalm 118 is just reminding us of the gospel. 
but today you've given us today to live. And Lord, I pray that everyone at Grace Church, everyone that either calls Grace Church their church or at least has been attending in the last couple of years would say, okay, joining the pastoral team, joining the staff, I'm repenting of my sin. God, I pray that through that, you would, you would truly move in us a changed heart with a compassionate heart. I pray that you would convict us, create us in a heart of conviction so we'll confess. And God, that we'll be contrite about it, that we'll have a changed heart and it will be compassionate. Lord, please, change a behavior. Behavior modification does nothing. It looks good on the outside, but our hearts are ugly. It's pharisaical Christianity. I don't want any part of it, Lord. I want a compassionate heart, and I pray our people will have a compassionate heart. But we need to collectively come together as a church, corporately, and pray together. Push all of our things aside and saying, let's come together in prayer. That is my prayer for our church, Lord. God, be glorified this week. Challenge your people this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name.